1: Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about you. I'm your host, Voltron Senior Editor Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Ali Sadiq. Particularly in stand-up, I, I think of stand-up, a good joke can be written well and the, the mechanics of it are effectively surprising or interesting or novel, but greatness is in is needs an audience to sort of dictate, um, what really resonates with people, and also how to make it so it really resonates with people. Um, Ali Sadiq is a comedian who, who thinks of stand up as a conversation where just the comedian is talking, and so through how the audience responds with laughter or not just laughter with silence, with little noises, the comedian if they're properly connected will add more to the joke will change how he phrases certain things will change the pacing of the story he's telling um will act bigger will act smaller um and it is that that i mean that's what makes it a collaboration is they are a good comedian is actively working to better the material through how the audience is responding so in 2015, uh, Ali Sadiq was asked to perform for the Comedy Central Storytelling show, This Is Not Happening, um, in which he told the story of a particularly bad day early in his stint at a Texas prison um, early, in the early 90s. Ali did not know it was great. He thought it was like a story he had. Friends told him, hey, you should tell this story. And... Through the response in the room and then through the response online, he realized um, the story, which has become known as Mexican's God on Boots, was sort of like an instant classic. It it, it went viral. It it is now has, I think, almost 10 million views on YouTube alone. It went viral in a way that nothing he's done had. He already had been doing stand-up for 17 years. He had a number of TV appearances. He released three albums already. But, but this story ended up being sort of an unexpected jolt to his career. The next year, he got a half-hour special on Comedy Central. The year after that, in 2018, he released It's Bigger Than These Bars, which was an hour special he shot in a Texas jail. It does what great stories do, but stand-up stories have a hard time doing, which is having a story that shows what it was like without necessarily having just to tell people what it was like. This is a very funny story about a really painful, dark day for Ali, and it's a thing that you don't really realize until after you've heard the story and you think about it a little bit. The, the one thing you should know as you won't be able to see the joke is that Ali is sitting down. Ali always sits down when he performs. It's, it's one of the many things that make him such a unique stand-up performer. So here is Ali Sadiq. <clears throat>
3: My story is about prison, danger. Seeing that I look so menacing, you know, and I'm black, so you know it's gonna be about crime. <laughs> Let me tell you, prison is a is an odd place because you do not know the rules. No matter how many prison movies you watched and documentaries of locked up, you still don't know the rules. Of what's going to happen, so I'm on my way to what they call necessities. Necessities is, you know, where your clothes, you get your laundry and all that bullshit. So I'm walking to necessities, and a dude just walks by and say, "Mexican got on boots." I'm like, "What the fuck does that mean?" <laughs> because it's like I'm, I've been in prison like the first day. What you mean, Mexican got on boots? Everybody got on fucking boots. So I thought. Dude walked past, Mexican got on boots. Mexican got on boots. So I tell somebody else, Mexican got on boots. Dude looked down and say, Mexican do have on boots and just take off running. I'm like, was I supposed to run? <laughs> Because the Mexicans have on boots? So I asked the old dude. I said, hey, Mexican got on boots. He saying, all right, they got on boots. I said, what that mean? He said, it's going to be a riot. I said, you pretty calm about a riot. <laughs> I said, how you know Mexicans got on boots means it's going to have a riot? He said, because Mexicans don't wear boots on the wreck yard. I said, OK what they want in the rec yard, he say sneakers. They play handball all the time. And then you look and you see Mexicans over there playing handball, but they got on boots. <laughs> so I'm like, does not still don't comprehend? So I get back to my cell. I say, hey, to my cellie, I say, you Mexican. What Mexican got on boots mean? He said, that mean we're gonna ride. We're gonna stab a couple of black guys up. <laughs> and I asked, this, this, when you're in prison, you ask dumbass questions. I'm like, does the ride happen in here? <laughs> like in this cell? Cause me and you just finished eating together. What you mad at me about? I don't know. But this is when you learn that you stick with your race in prison, no matter what, you stick with your race. I don't know why I can't have a Mexican friend. He's in my cell. I don't know what the fuck is going on, but Mexican got on boots, and I gotta figure out what I'm supposed to do now. <laughs> and I still don't know, I gotta still ask people. Found a black dude, I'm like, yo, so what I do now the Mexican got on boots. <laughs> he said, you got to find you a knife. I say, I got to find a knife? Ain't no, You can't have no knife in prison. He said, you just got here, huh? I said, yeah, I just got here. He said, man, look, you're going to need to find a dude named Cece and get you a knife. <laughs> There's 3,000 people on this unit. How the fuck i am supposed to find Cece? I don't know. <laughs> so I'm just walking around. Mexican got on boots, CC. (laughs) Mexican got on boots, CC. Dude say, hey, you looking for CC? I say, yeah, you must need a knife. I say, yeah. He say, why you need a knife? I say, you ain't hurt? He say, no, I ain't hurt shit. I been away at work all day. Mexican got on boots. (laughs) He take off running. <laughs> I take off running after him only because he never told me what CeCe was. <laughs> I catch him, he say, man, go on the rec yard. CeCe gonna be on the rec yard. And I'm like, I don't wanna go on the rec yard. I just left the rec yard. That's how I found out Mexican had on boots. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting on the rec yard looking around for somebody who may look like a dude named CeCe. So I'm asking, I'm looking, I'm waiting. I say, somebody going to speak to CeCe, got to. Dude walk, what up, CC? I say, that's who I'm looking for right there. I see CeCe, I nod, he nod back. I say, can I come over there? He say, come on, young blood. I get over there. I say, hey, CeCe, Meskin got on boots. He say, I heard. I say, I need a knife. He say, well, come to my cell in a couple of minutes. I'm going to hook you up. I get to the cell. I say, Cece, I need a knife. He said, which the shit turned different. He said, what type of knife? I don't know. I just fucking got here. (laughs) He said, what type of knife you looking for? I say, something sharp. Something to poke a motherfucker with. I don't know. (laughs) So he put up a towel and say, hold on. Let me show you some knives put up a towel, went under this mattress, took some shit out, Slid some shit back, and now it's eight knives in front of me. It's like I'm at fucking Macy's. I'm like, yo. I'm like, you know, what kind of knife you want? I said, well, you know what kind of knife I need for a ride? I ain't never been to ride before. He said, well, you gonna need something where you can stick multiple people and it break off. I say, is that right here on the thing? He say, no, nah, these are personal knives. What kind? Of, what you want your knife made out of? I say, there's too many fucking choices, man. I just need a knife to protect myself. He say, well, God damn it, listen to me, man. Do you want it made out of wood, plastic, metal, or what? I say, Cece, listen to me. I don't know, because I've never been to ride before, what's going to protect me? He say, fuck new-ass motherfucker. <laughs> like, it's wrong to be just getting to prison. I don't want to be here from the beginning, so calling me new don't mean shit to me. So I said, so man, what would you suggest? He said, I suggest something personal, like a pen top. Pin top? I want no fucking pen top knife. I want a real knife. Something I can just get in there with. He say, no. What you get a pin top is a knife with a pen, but you push a nail through it and then you put the top on it. And just have it in your pocket so we can walk around with it. I say that sounds pretty cool. But can they would that sustain with a riot? He say, no, this ain't that ain't riot knives. That's just personal walk-around. I say, motherfucker, I need a knife for the riot. <laughs> "'Cause Meskin got on boots!" (laughs) I said, man, how much is a personal knife gonna cost me? Two bags of coffee. Come back a little later on the day. I said, what is the riot jump off before I get the knife? He said, that ain't my business. That's on you. I said, cool, CC. So I wait three or four hours, and I knew he was working on my knife because I was down in the cell and I heard, on the ground. I say, yeah, my knife gonna be sharp than a motherfucker. Cause I'm hearing it. I'm like, I'm hearing it. I'm like, yeah, I can't wait. And I'm practicing in my cell how I'm gonna use my knife. Practicing my shit. So then this dude named Mitch say, hey, you getting your knife? I say, yeah, CC working on my knife. He say, what kind of knife you get? I say, what the fuck is all the knife questions? I said, I got me a nice little knife. He said, it's long. I can hit two, three people. He say, man, you need more than that. <laughs> I say what I need now? He said, you need to know about how to fight in a riot. I say how you fighting in a riot? He said, Mexican got on boots. This is the reason why they have on boots. So they can kick you in this fucking shin while you fighting. Boots are made out of metal. The metal is a metal tip boot. So you got to do this. This is Mitch. This is in my cell teaching me how to be in a riot look first of all when you get out there stay close to the wall because motherfuckers gonna be trying to stab you i said that's pretty much what a riot is so he (laughs) said, i got that part off the top (laughs) that's why i'm getting a knife okay so he say you're gonna have to do a rock and lean i said what the fuck is a rock and lean mexican's gonna come out there they gonna have their knives. You gonna have to have your shirt off with your knife. And when you do this, you gonna have to rock to see what, what foot the Mexican gonna kick you with. I said, this, this is too much. This is too much. <laughs> it's like a fucking choreographed dance. I don't know what the fuck it's doing. So I'm waiting to get my knife. I'm in there fake rocking, trying to see what foot gonna come up. How to do that? Well, you ain't even the fucking ride yet? I don't know, but I'm out there practicing. I go back to CeCe. I say, yo, CeCe. I gotta go to the rec yard. Shit look like it's finna get live. I need my knife. He say, man, I just sold your knife. (laughs) I say, man, what the fuck? See, so you said it was a personal knife. For me, it cost two bags of coffee. Why it's not fucking personal no more? He say, man, it was personal. Then a dude came in with three bags of coffee. Then he made it business. I say, so you sold my knife? He say, yeah. So your knife I see the ride about to jump off Hey, man, do what you can do So more of the story how I end up I fucking get cut Because I ain't have a fucking knife and I forgot the rock I'm out there rocking with no knife I've been practicing shit for two hours rock. I'm not getting kicked, but I'm getting cut I Got cut down my side from a Mexican who didn't even have on boots.
2: So I'm here with Ali Sadiq. Thank you for joining me.
3: Oh, thank you for having me very much.
2: So I, I'd like to tell the story of you and and this story and, and your history in comedy in chronological order. And so after hearing that story, which, which is a bit of a snapshot of that day, I feel like people would be interested in hearing what the full day was like so we can get a sense of what you're... Actually, eventually, working with when you were going to talk about it on stage decades later, can you you know you don't have to go in as much detail, but can you sort of walk me through the the actual day where Mexicans got boots on sort of was generated, not the not the making of, but the actual day where that that ride happened.
3: Um, the day um, I don't remember the exact date, but I was on this unit um, Torres unit in Hondo, Texas um not knowing that i was going to actually ever tell this story to anyone outside of my my yeah. friends um so the day started with a uh, altercation early on that day between two individuals that i had no knowledge of mm-hmm. and i just got transferred to that unit i was coming from a another unit and I, I didn't really know. I wasn't familiar with how this particular unit operated at the time, because this was like a um, what they called a rock and roll unit. It's what mm-hmm. you know, what they they kind of always fighting. And I came from a more laid back kind of unit. With it, they they actually shipped us over there, me and some older guys, to kind of get the unit under control. Mm. As how. Um, Older inmates kind of give, that's that's how I was pretty much um, subdued because I came from an older unit. I was fighting at first and then old guys kind of talked me into like, hey, man, that's not how you want to do your time. So yeah. um, so I get to this unit and it it, it felt like a little tension, you know, because this is one of those type of units, man, that they just, <laughs> they, they looking for altercation. So something happened earlier that day and I happened to be going to get getting ready to go to necessities mm-hmm. and this guy was like, "Yo man, um I'm going to walk with you because I don't know what's going on with these Mexicans. They um they all of them got their boots on." Yeah. And I was like, oh, "Okay." And he, I said, "I don't need nobody to walk with me. I'm cool, fam." Um. And so, so, he's like, "No, nah, man, I'm I'm trying to tell you something happening because the Mexicans on this particular unit, which is a, it's it's a cross between because it's it's several Hispanic gangs mm. in in on a prison unit in Texas. So these particular people were from um the Mexican mafia. They was from they was out of San Antonio." And so you have Texas Syndicate and RU and Mexico and Azteca and all these other different units, but these particular guys were from uh, Mexican Mafia and all of them, they usually would be playing handball Mm -hmm. and and they don't wear their boots to play handball. So the fact that they had their boots on kind of prompted people from that particular unit to, to know that something was happening. And then getting the backstory about the altercation that happened earlier um, in the day. So I was getting ready to go to get my clothes. And this guy from another building, because I was on four buildings, this guy from another building said, hey man, um, had you heard? I was like, heard what? He's like, the Mexican got them <laughs> boots on, you know, just to put... Yeah. You know, to put in um, in perspective, it was another black guy trying to give me a heads up that something something ain't right. Something's going something jumping off, so kind of watch your back. And you and you walking out here by yourself. Yeah. And I was like, I thought I was I, right, even though somebody just told me, "Yo, I'm gonna walk with you." So we, everybody in twos or whatever. I, and I and I actually saw other people walking together, and I'm just like, I don't know nobody, so I'm cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm rolling by myself. And I, I at the time I just got there, so I didn't even know one of my dudes that I um, had saw earlier in a, on another unit named Mitch. Mitch was on the same block, yeah. And I and I didn't even know because he hadn't been out of his cell. So end up going to necessities, and people was explaining other black dudes like, "Yo, man, you out here walking by yourself." The Mexicans catch you by yourself. It's gonna be a problem. Like, but what is? I don't even know what's going on. Yeah, so, yeah. what is the problem? You know, I, I've been on. I came to prison by myself, so I'm not accustomed to being with nobody else. He's like, nah, man, you got to partner up until we figure out when they gonna attack. You know, so when um I heard it was going down the wreck yard. I I didn't. I'm not gonna miss my wreck because of no fight. Hmm. You know, that, that ain't got nothing to do with me. In my mind, it don't have nothing to do with me. Yeah. But they like, nah, man, on this particular unit, it's like, when it start, it's like black against Mexican. Like they don't care if you ain't got nothing to do with it or not. I'm like, well, that's, that's dumb. Cause I didn't come from a place like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I came from a place that you, that you would just attack, you know, the same person that you, that you dealt with. I came from a unit that was kind of segregated with, uh, if you from Houston, you roll with people from Houston. If you're from Dallas, you roll with Dallas. Uh, and then even down, segregated further than that, if you're from the south side of Houston, yeah. you roll with south side people. It's just like if you're from the north side of the southwest, you know, I happen to be from the southwest of Houston. So when, after coming from Necessities, my celly was a Mexican guy, and I was like, yo, um, and he happened to be from San Antonio. Yeah. So I'm like, yo man, I see your people got on boots. Um, what's that about? And he's like, Oh man, it's gonna be gonna be a race ride. We're gonna stab up some black dudes. And I was like, So do the riots start in here so I can get it <laughs> understood how I'm gonna approach this situation. And then <laughs> like so that's the lead up to how it. But the the, the day was longer than the sixteen yeah. minutes that I told. It's like yo man. After they after we were gassed, a lot of us was restrained. Like they restrained the whole wreck yard in these plastic ties. And it was people that was out there that wasn't even in the riot. That wasn't fighting. That wasn't doing anything. There was people bleeding. They got cut. You know, I got cut. Um, out there, but I was I was cool. Um, and you just was the the worst thing was being hogtied on the ground mm. with gas with gas. You had already been gassed, and now you hogtied on the ground. And we was out there for maybe like six or seven hours while they was sorting while they was sorting through what happened and who was involved and what knife was with who and. You know, and then it's white guys out there. It's like, yo, man, I was just out here playing volleyball. <laughs> like, like <laughs> it was, it was, it was a lot. Like when my friends read, he was like, yo, man, I just came out here to get some fresh air because he, he was pissed. He's like, man, you young people out here fighting. I came out here to get some fresh air. I'm like, man, I'm not. I I was just out here. Yeah. I wasn't even I wasn't, I wasn't even fault. I said how you hogtied blaming people for what's going on. I didn't even know him like that but we got we got that's how we got cool being hogtied next yeah. to each other. So, um after that we were we were put into the gym and sorted out and some people were put in lockup that was that was orchestrators of the, of the riot and then Others like myself, they locked the you they locked the unit down for um like three or four days. We were just in the whole unit was locked wow. down besides kitchen workers. And that's when you got to know a lot of people because you just in your cell and yeah. you in the cell with somebody else. So you got him to talk to, and then you at the bars hollering. I think that was the first time I had ever talked. To somebody, just through the balls that I couldn't see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you just hollering across the day room.
2: Considering that this sort of riot was was new for you, and the experience was like seemingly such a long day of this, what what was the impact of this day on you, and how you thought about or approached the rest of your time in prison?
3: My my thing was always to I I didn't really get jovial until. I went to a a maximum security. I went back to a maximum security prison, but this was when I started organizing people together mm. to to read and be involved in school and education. So I was that's the thing. I had already been coached in Amarillo by old guys how to do my time, and I and I was just feeling like. A lot of young cats that was coming to this unit didn't know how to do their time Mm. and what and how to utilize their time. So I try to, I try to be kind of like an example of, Hey man, use your time to better yourself because you won't be in this place forever unless you choose to be institutionalized. Like I was, I never was institutionalized my whole six years. So I was just, this just happened to be where I was staying. Yeah, that's how this old cat told me to look at my time. He's like, "Yo, this just this just an extended stay, man. This this is not what this is not your life."
2: Yeah, as you tell it, you started doing comedy in prison, and obviously there wasn't like open mics there. But can you share what that meant to, in a way, be doing comedy or finding your 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 love of comedy there?
3: I think people take that out of context. I, I always I've always said that I I found that I was funny. Yeah. In prison. Cause I wasn't doing stand-up. I didn't know what to I didn't know what it was to do stand-up. Um, I didn't know the, the mechanics of it, you know, and that's one thing that I'm I'm very passionate about when it comes to stand-up. I, I hate the fact that um people think that anybody can do what comics do, which is definitely incorrect. Being funny around your friends and your family is different yeah. than being in front of an audience of people that don't know you. So I found that I was I was the same as I was as a kid. You know, I grew up on the back of the bus, you know, or at school talking, you know, talking to my friends, telling funny, telling funny stories. So this is just a place that I was a little more charismatic and jovially sarcastic, but how I knew that I was going to do stand up. Hmm. When I got out, that was going to be the um the pursuit of, you know, the duration of my life was this this guy named Rick. He asked me what I was gonna do when I got out. And I you know, I'd always been this 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 funny dude on the block. And I said, man, I'm gonna probably try to do stand up. And then he told me, he's like, yo man, I've been here I've been here like 10, 15 years, and a lot of people done told me a lot of things what they was going to do when they got out. Mm. And I and I and I never had Uh, Thought about them doing it. I never even believed in it. I was like, "Nah, they not. That's not what they are gonna do." But when you said that you was gonna be a comedian, I was like, "Yeah, that match. That match your your personality because you know Rick, he knew that how I actually started was I used to I was on Ellis Ellis two, and I was the I was the SSI, which is basically a glorified janitor. Um, <laughs> so yeah. That for the for this block, um, closed custody block, and I I had to be over there. And these were people who was locked up twenty three hours a day. They don't have no TV. They don't have no paper. They just in they cell. The library comes and drops off books or whatever. They get fed and they sell. They live there. They they do everything and they sell. So I'm the I'm the janitor, um, for this particular clothes custody and these people they usually would because the janitors was so horrible and didn't care about their um if they got fresh underwear, they got fresh clothes, if they food was hot, you know, they didn't really a lot of people didn't take care of them like they should have cuz you know they in their cells 23 hours a day. Yeah. So when I became the the SSI over there, I used to make sure that the block was clean and I cuz I wanted eat cuz they used to flood the block and burn up stuff and and I just thought man like maybe they doing that because don't nobody keep it like it should be so I you know I wanted the block to to kind of be fresh so if you know I always had the block smelling like like this little pine oil that we had to clean up with you know, I would I would mop the run. I would make sure that they had um, fresh underwear because what happens in prison, which is um, when you when I look back at it, how disgusting it was. Even though I know I I had the ability to get a a brand new pair of underwear, and then I would just keep them, yeah. Because you know you gotta change your underwear out every day when you go to the laundry. You go to the necessity. I would just keep them and just wash them myself once you get a brand new pair. Because other than that, you got you wearing. If it's three thousand people on a unit, and you wear a size medium, and and nine hundred other people wear yeah. mediums, you basically has put placed your sack in the direct area of somebody else's sack. You know, so <laughs> so um, and then I had worked in the laundry before, so I knew how I knew how that operation went. So I'm over there on this block and you know it's a mix of people, white, black, Mexican, the couple of Asian dudes over there. Um and I would watch Martin with the intensity of a psychopath. Like yo, <laughs> like I would watch this show like to to almost know every line on this show and then I would at the right before I get get off I'd be like, yo, it's TV time. And I would perform every the the episode of Martin. I would do all the characters. And so Mm -hmm. I'm I'm Martin, Tommy, Cole, Gina, Pam, I'm I'm everybody. And so when Martin went off, I didn't have anything else. So I just started giving basically funny commentary about what was happening and other Mm -hmm. other places on the unit or I would talk about certain inmates that was on the block, you know, um that we was on on the coast of the coastal block. I would talk about the officers and and they would just listen and and laugh and and that was my introduction into what I was thinking that stand up was. Yeah.
2: Before you comedian like this happened to you, this riot happened and it is, it is an event. Did you think back upon that day? Was it a story you told? Was it a story you thought about? Like what type of memory, you know, it would be decades before you would tell it. What, how did it sort of stay with you?
3: It was because it's, it's what happens. It's like like if, if you learn how to ride a bike or you fell off a bike one day, you know when you fail. Yeah. It's like it's like it's like it's like so it prompts you. Somebody was like, if they talking about bikes, you're like, yo, I remember when I fell off this bike and bust and cracked my teeth. You it, it's like you can't forget that event. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's several more events that happened in in that six year span. I can't forget what it was like for those six years of my particular from 19 to 25. Even if somebody brought up something it was like yo um like like I I don't ever realize that I never saw um Tupac or biggie smalls until somebody bring it up it was like yo in 1996 I was like and I was like ah, I don't I wasn't yeah. out in 96 <laughs> like you know <laughs> so so, and then, so you know. It's like I know if somebody says something about the Million Man March, I know what I did on that particular day, and I know I was in prison, and I know exactly what I did mm-hmm. i orchestrated a peaceful protest on Torres unit to where uh, all the all the black people that was on the unit we didn't go to the we didn't go to the cafeteria the what they call the child hall, we didn't go to the child hall and eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner, which would cost the state. Uh, upwards of like a hundred thousand dollars for that particular day. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I remember it, it's like. Yeah. You know I can't forget the the first time I was hogtied on the ground for about yeah. eight hours. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but would even outside of prison, would you be, before you told on stage, would you tell this story to friends of like what prison was like? Was it a thing that you 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 told?
3: You know, me and my friends would talk about stories and Bill Bellamy was like, yo, man, you gonna have to eventually tell one of those stories. And D.L. used to tell me, it's like, hey, man, the your career and the funniest you're gonna be is gonna be based upon how honest you want to mm. be. You know, and you have a unique story. And in my mind... I've been doing stand-up for 17 years. You know, I was on Comic View and Def Jam and Who's Got I was on all this stuff. So I never thought to tell prison stories on stage because I didn't want to be this one trick pony where people thought that that's oh that's all that he have. And like yeah. like, nah, like. I was doing stand-up 17 years before I ever even told the prison ride story. And because of this is not happening, that was a platform that when I was invited to do the show, and you can tell a true story and it does not have it's not punchy. You yeah. don't have to punch it up or none of that. It was um it was this thing where I was like, yo. I didn't know which story I was going to tell. And then my man was like, yo man, you got to say that story about when you was in that damn riot." Yeah. You know, and that, that's kind of where I I went with it because it was, it was a story. I didn't think that it was too serious. You know, I know it had funny parts in it between me and Mitch and, me and, and I for for the longest I didn't know why people thought it was funny. I was just telling <laughs> a true story based upon my time in prison. I, like I didn't see it as a jovial story. You know, I saw it as a I'm glad I made it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um I think that's the that's the thing that was so what was so great about that show that comedians And uh, especially for myself, got a chance to tell a story without having to punch it up. And I, I used to, if I heard somebody's story and I felt like he was punched up, I was like, you know, it's kind of going against what the, the theme of the show was about, you know, and some people's story was just funny in the, in the, in the naturalness of it. You know, like, it's probably, you You know, anybody can have something going on in their life, and the naturalness of what happened is is hysterical. That's why when, when Bird Crisis was, like, trying to explain to me why <laughs> yeah. this story was so brilliant, I was like, I was like, I didn't get it. I was like, it's just a story. He's like, no, it's the way that you're presenting it, you know, and I was like, oh.
2: I think he listening to that in particular, he tapped into you capture sort of you as an older person thinking back of what you were like when it was happening, right? So you you're, you have both you in the present being like it's crazy how naive I was. And you in the so you sort of bounce back and forth, but when you're you're telling that story and you're yourself in the moment, you're there's like a, a real innocence to you and you're like, Can you believe this guy was so new to prison, and he was acting this way, and now we all know. Before this is not happening, especially if you listen to your first few albums, you see you're transitioning to becoming more of a storyteller, in general, in, in your act. What caused that transition? What, um, what did you look to when you're thinking about like maybe I can start doing storytelling? Were there influences? You know, what made that shift? You know. Even by your your by Enjoy Your Life, which is your third album, you're you're you had a lot of stories on that one.
3: The, the the thing was with um Rodney Dangerfield, he I I used to listen to him tell short stories. Like his stories were shorter, but they were still pop, pop, pop. They had these, this pop to it and and Don Rickles shorter stories but had pop to them. And then you got Red Fox. I would be so engulfed in what he's saying. And I was like, yo, man, this is the most powerful position in stand-up. Is if you develop to where you can captivate an audience mm-hmm. with your ability to tell a story. And and the story and they and you take them on a ride. With you, and you, and you link together, um, with with some continuity of story from this point to this point to this point, which is what, um, from the prison ride, Mexican got on boots to Mitchell is a transition. I went to prison for a nonviolent case, drug dealer. What he just turned me into was a violent young man at 21, because you made me cough and squat for no fucking reason other than that you wanted to see me in my mind. So now, I'm, I got tears in my eyes and people walking past, other prisoners walking past, and they looking at Mitchell like, Mitchell, <laughs> this ain't gonna be good. So for eight months, I've been planning on killing Mitchell. <laughs> you know, i was to the point where I could transition from being 19 to now I'm 22, 23 years old, and I'm in a different I'm in a different head space. And I've been here, and the key to even telling these stories in conjunction to each other is to show the shift in mentality. From one, being a non-violent offender coming into this place of violence and being to shift to being a very vulnerable, respected, violent, not intentionally violent, but you push me to being violent because you trying to be disrespectful Hmm. and knowing that. This is a this is now you have a a 22 23 year old man who actually knows himself 100% and what he going to stand for and what he not going to stand for. You know what I'm saying? And to understand that I don't see consequences anymore cuz I whatever comes I can accept the consequences. You know from being young and jovial with the whole intention of like ah, I'm going to just make it through this mm. da 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 and I don't do too much, you know. You can't run over me, but I'm, I'm just trying to keep my nose clean to stay out, to, so I can get out. To I don't give a damn. You're not gonna run. You're not gonna run over me. And whatever it takes to let you understand that, that's what it's gonna be.
2: Yeah.
3: You know. So. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, it it felt like if I, if I'm getting what you're saying, like ultimately you had an. There's a, a quote of advice you get, which is that um, I believe is comedian Billy D. Washington told you, if if you're not yes. going to be funny, be interesting. And I yes. think it seems like you were like, oh, I have interesting things to say. And it's okay if there's a time where it's interesting, where that transition is not necessarily funny, but that transition is compelling. And you, and stories
3: allowed you to show both sides of it. Yes. And, and, and that's the, that is kind of like me, what I got, what I got from being incarcerated from older people and wiser people that I chose to pick to be around is kind of like the same thing I do <laughs> when mm-hmm. I'm when I'm in in free society. I I gravitate towards those people who their energy tells me that they good people and they want the best for me and they give me an interesting perspective on how I should present things, you know, without, and it's very hard to find people that don't have conflict of interest or malice for you. They just want to see you do your absolute best and they, and they'll push you to do your best with a very unapologetically. Yo, I'm going to tell you this. I don't care how you feel about it, but this is going to be the best position for you if you want to Prosper and go and go further. So, man, that that one, I'm very, I'm very impressed that you have done your research on oh, of me because, because sometimes the interviews are not are not. You like so. Tell me how, man. I done said it a thousand times, but <laughs> uh, but that that quote by Billy D. Washington is very dear to me because I think that it gave me something that I didn't have and it gave me the confidence to be who I am now. Like, yo, mm-hmm. when you're not being funny, be interesting. So when you do a you do a 55 minute set and then at the end you decide to talk about food deserts. Mm. You know, which is not the the lightest of topic and you understand how you can get a get rid of food deserts and this that and the third and you you leave with that because in your mind I've made you laugh for fifty five minutes
2: yeah
3: I'm taking five minutes to give you some other type of food other than laughter and I don't and I don't need the I don't need to walk off to the raw or whatever and yeah. so that gives me an advantage over the audience when it comes to being. I'm not fearful if you if you didn't laugh at the end, or I'm not fearful if you don't laugh when I first come out because I decide I want to do something very intricate that you have to listen to, mm. or I want to stop in the middle of my set and say, "Let's talk about diabetes," you know. <laughs> No and you know that's the the beauty of being able to um tell a story and you know and be vulnerable on stage and I think people like listening to me cuz I'm not the hero mm. all the time. I some some of these stories I lose in. Some yeah. of these stories I look <laughs> I look terrible like the I have a new album getting ready to come out. And it's a story about when I decided I wanted to try to talk to Lil' Kim. <laughs> <laughs> because she said I, I read an interview, she said she liked regular dudes. And I was like, <laughs> I'm I'm regular. And <laughs> and it just didn't go it didn't go yeah. like like I like I envisioned it. Yeah. You know?
2: <laughs> we we'll right back with more Ali Sadiq. Mm-hmm. And we're back with Ali Sadiq. So, um, I I want to ask a little bit how you you approach thinking about which parts of a story you know for a story like this that has many elements. You know, in in the your 2013 album um, "Enjoy Your Life," you tell. A version of the riot story it's i want to call it the same story because it, it focuses less on the mexicans got boots part of the joke and it's much more much more about the knives and then you, you talk about the tear gas and you talk about being on the ground where obviously on this is not happening it's it's much more focused on the mexican got boots is like really the sort of like refrain you hit can you talk about why for an audience in 2013 or in or at that time you told one version of the joke and why for the, the comedy central version, you're like, Oh, I'm going to focus just on this element. Like t- walk me through your thought process. So we can, it can get a sense of how you approach sort of different
3: times, man, you are really on it. <laughs> so, so this is what happens with me. Yeah. And, in, in the aspect of, I, I know where I was at in, I, what, place I was at. I was in the Houston Improv. And um, the fact that it was so many people there that I had been locked up with. Mm. And so the intricate parts of about the the being on the ground, it's like, and it was a lot of young people there. And my whole point was stressing, this is not the place that you want to go because it's not guaranteed that you're going to make it out, you know? And it, mm. it's this whole mindset of this has to, this part of it has to be drilled home. That the knife, the danger, the gas, the being on on the ground and still being even in this in, in this instance, you still the last people to come in. Cause they took the white guys in first. Then they took the Mexican guys in. And then how you end up on the ground seven to eight hours because you black and you out there. And I didn't even put the aspect of the some people getting kicked in the face with the boots and people having to have to use the restroom and just peeing on themselves because yeah. you know they they couldn't take it no more. So, the audience, I can look. I look out in the audience and I sometimes say, "This is what's significant that mm-hmm. I need to give them the message of, don't think that prison is cool." I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like, you know, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm. I'm being. I'm being funny about this story, but let me give you some more understanding about how this place. Is dangerous,
4: yeah,
3: and you don't, and you shouldn't want to be there. And this is not a badge or honor. So then, with Comedy Central, it is more about the youth and me and the the youngness and how I shouldn't be in this particular violent situation as a nonviolent hmm. offender. And this is where you place me. This is where you place me at. And now I'm here. And this is what I'm dealing. And this is what I'm dealing with from this particular aspect of it. So man, that's a dynamite question. Because a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't see the transition in certain things. And and I'm very I, I have a point to why I'm doing certain pieces of a story. Because it's significant to who's out there listening. Mm. that that's the that's the 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 overall answer is very significant to who's listening
2: is it a thing like before the taping would you have done this do you do the story to a different audiences see which part what each responds to you just sort of an instinct of what they were responding to sort of you know in general how are you working on a story
3: and and i know this is gonna sound this is gonna sound extra terrible And Extra Horrible. And I don't want no young comic to even pick this up. I don't practice it Mm -hmm. because I know the story. So it's nothing for me to practice. I just got to get out there and feel the audience. Mm -hmm. It's It's like I can see it. I can just see it. And I don't know how I see it. I can just see it. Even like, I remember doing my, my Def Jam set and I never ran the set of what I was going to do. And and I got a stand ovation on it, but I never ran it for, I just talked to my boy Dave Lawson. I just talked to him. And it's like, I always talk to Dave before I get ready to record something and i just talked to him and he's like yo man that's how you do it and it, and it's like he's not giving me pointers hes just telling me how he felt when i was talking to him hmm. it's like that's how you do it and it's uh it's a thing and i and i hate to say it like that because it's it's it sounds like oh he just Think he good. I'm like, no, I really, I really feel it. Like I real live feel it because I love stand-up so much. I know me. So and when I'm being honest, I don't have to prepare. Hmm. You know, and I know that sounds crazy. When I'm like when I did my special in prison, I was I wasn't running the set. Places. I was just going to I was going to clubs and I'm doing everything but the set that I'm that I know <laughs> that I'm gonna do when I get there because I know I got to feel it. I have to see them and connect with them. And once I connect with an audience, I, I think we together because I want I want my show to be like I literally want it to feel like yo man, I just finished talking to <laughs> one of my Crazy friends and one yeah. of my cool cousins and yo man, like I I, I want to feel like your friend. Like I want to feel like I'm a part of your life when when I when the show is over. I don't want to just feel like a performer. Like I tell very personal things sometimes when I'm doing story when I'm doing stories and some of this stuff is painful and and some of it is just to help you know like I, I I I've been I I started telling this story about when my father passed right before my special came out. Hmm. And this is somebody who used to go to the library and watch everything I did. And before he before he passed, I wanted to know that he see the trailer for my special. And he was like, "Yeah, I saw it." And People like I, I have strawberries in my room, like on my rider. I have strawberries on on the thing. Cause I always I, I always want strawberries in my room because my daddy loves strawberries. And I remember, and I was telling this story like when he called me, he would call me, and say, "Hey man, let me tell you, I want you to t- what I want you to tell the people. <laughs> like <laughs> I was like what you want me to tell the people? I guess it was this big thing going on with immigration. Yeah, and I was like, my I say my daddy. Told me the most ignorant thing that he, call, he called me and said, "Hey man, I know you got a, I know you got a little mainstream white audience. Like you know, mainstream and white is two different things." He's like, "Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you got a little mainstream white audience." Uh, I want, I, what I want, let me tell you what I want you to tell them, white folks. I said, "What you want me to tell them? Tell them to stop talking about immigration." I said, "What?" He said, "Tell them to stop talking about immigration." I said, "Why? Why?" He said, "Cause they ain't gonna do nothing to Mexicans." I said. Why you say that? He say, "Cause white folks love strawberries." <laughs> I said, "What does it got to do with immigration?" He say, "They love them, but they ain't gonna go pick them." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Man, get off my phone!" It's like, it's like. But then I thought about it, and like, yeah. <laughs> he's correct. But <laughs> and I like, I always have strawberries in my room because he loved them, and he was, he was this this person that was a a empty part of my life but yet a full part of my life mm-hmm. and that don't and that seems like it doesn't make sense because I I felt empty when he wasn't around you know when you know he left at three he came back around 10. I stayed with him for two years and he was gone again and we didn't speak for for a while but when I needed him or when he needed me, I felt the need to show up to fulfill some type of void that, mm. that would be in me. You know, I, I paid for his, his funeral. I, I settled his debt before he died. You know, I remember playing chess with him for six hours, um, three hours uh, um, a day, just us just playing chess before he passed. And I, I try to, when i say the stories about him i i look at the good the bad parts and i try to put that on stage so it's it's just me being vulnerable in front of an audience is is how i decide to tell a story cuz without telling people that man this was a without just blatantly saying at some at a lot of times in prison, I was fearful of my life, so instead of just saying that, I just talk about how many knives and mm-hmm. how many <laughs> you know and I, and and you know it's it's just those things without just saying that this how dangerous this place was, and at nineteen, it's no way for you not to be concerned about your safety.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he, how you talk about that and, and sort of just like having the stories be and how you sort, of, you sort of show them what is happening without telling them, which is like, this was scary, but like here's this situation and I'm presenting as it is and you can laugh at parts of it, but like you should also be aware that like this is clearly a scary situation. The thing I was really interested in is how you set up the story. You know, like once you launch into the story, it seems like you're sort of like doing the story, but you say two things before you start, which is, My story is about prison, danger, seeing that I look so menacing. And then you say, and I'm black, so you know it's about crime. And then before you start, you go, prison is an odd place because you don't know the rules. No matter how many prison movies you watch and documentaries of locked up, you still don't know the rules of what's going to happen. Why start with that before you get into the story? What does that prime the audience to know what the story is about?
3: To kind of flush out the nonsense that they see in Without saying how much I hate the Oranges and New Black mm-hmm. and 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 Oz and all these things that depict prison as this this is not a romantic or a a place of um this fictitious world that they give people in these stories and I I, I just try to set it up to understand like yo let me give y'all a a glimpse from somebody who was there not what they want to write what they want to put down what let's cut these parts off let me give it to you in a way that you can feel it i want you to mm. smell it i want you to taste it i want you to understand and maybe you can go back and tell somebody who is in trouble maybe you doing some reckless stuff and you can get a glimpse into this world and it's so many positions that I take on this. Like, I don't know if, if, um, I've done intake on an album yet. I can't recall. It's, it's, it's so many.
2: I, I also can't remember. You, you might've done on a prison manual.
3: Yeah. Intake is on the prison manual. Yeah. Um, so intake is this, place that I want to describe to get people to understand, even though I'm doing it very jovial, but yo, man, this is the worst thing. And like, it's, like, it's like, to me, it might have been something worse than somebody, might have, well, the food was the worst. No, this part, the beginning was the worst. Like, like, like It's like this Like the first year of law school where they do all the reading up yeah, front. Yeah. Like, This is this is a long, this is a long, like you will be naked in a line more than one time. This is just the first time and it's terrible. You will do this a lot. Like, like if you uncomfortable with this, which I was, let's, let's get this understood. This is horrible and you're going to do it a lot. You're going to be strip searched a lot. You're going to, this, it's like ridiculous. And you know, I just try to set people' mind up for the thing. And, and the weird thing is, when I say that this is a story about prison, that's the first part. Then I said, you know, seeing that I look so menacing, second, which I don't. Then, <laughs> then, <laughs> then two is that you know it's gonna be about crime because I'm because I'm black. Let me ease your mind with what you thinking. No, it's about crime because it's a prison story. I just happens to be... (laughs) So it's like like underlined stuff in there for me because I don't even look like the prison person. Mm -hmm. And that's by design because I was groomed not to look like that. I was groomed not to talk like that. I was groomed to come out and when somebody says, oh, you know, he was locked up for six years, they're like, are you serious, him? Why? Like, what'd he do? Like, I know him. You know, Yeah. I to, to not have this overall, whatever you've heard about prison, I'm not the prison persona. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you about this place. And I think that's another part of why I'm setting things up like this because I don't have that prison mystique and nor do I want it. So I'm the I'm the kid next door that you just found out that like, yo, he was in he was in jail. Like for what? What did he do? What did he do? Like like, like yeah, you yeah. can't like like you can't believe it. And you know? then like so, you know, it's it's underlying things, man. Which is which is the best puzzle that you can leave for the game.
2: When, when you're performing th- this bit it, and you you're sort of doing your side of the scenes and you're talking to yourself or even when you are performing as cc or a, a, or mitch do you like are you back there like do you like how deep into characters are you like when you're telling a story how vibrant how how real oh, does man. it feel
3: in that moment? oh man I am I, okay. Let me tell you how real this is with me. So I'm quite sure you heard Mitchell. Yeah. I will not perform Mitchell because, and and, and like at the end of my shows, I ask people, "Is there any stories y'all want me to tell?" And people yell out Mitchell, and I and I say no. If y'all don't want me, if y'all want me to come out and take pictures <laughs> after afterwards and be okay, I'm saying. Then I'm not doing Mitchell now. If you don't want that, then I do it. But just know I'm gonna stay in that green room because I be actually so angry. Mm. Like I, I, like I, even it, it happened. This happened years and years and years ago, almost two decades ago, and I still be angry like it happened just then. So when I'm doing Prison Riot, I am CC at the time. I'm, I'm, I'm his whole, I'm his whole vibe. I'm I'm Mitchell because I un- I, I mean I'm uh, Mitch because I understood how excited he was, and I never understood why <laughs> was he this <just, laughs> excited. And you know I I'm I can see I always can see which I hate this man. I always can see the day room like mm-hmm. it, when I, the whole time I'm telling this story I'm I'm in. For, I'm in the building. I'm in Torres. I'm right on Torres. I'm in the day room. I see Champ on the table. I see people watching TV. Mitch at my cell. Mexican dudes along the top of the run. People in the shower. The control booth. The on um, the two officers. The officer walking around doing doing um random checks. And I see Cece working. On this cell, and it is not. I can I can see the whole thing, and I know I was um on the wreck yard. I know where I was tied down. I knew, you know. It's just I can see this whole vibe of this place. It's like Torres. I didn't. It's like that is burnt into my memory of. How it was the day. I can feel the yeah. still. I can feel the stillness, and I definitely see when I saw when it un, started to unfold. And I when I first heard the first, la, 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 I'm like, "What is that, yo?" And that's when I am like, "Oh snap! This shit is real." Mm. Like. <laughs> 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 yeah. yo where are they coming from like why is it so many of them who they are very organized this is a, they had a strategy it's like and it's like I can see this whole wreckyard just blow up with people fighting and getting stabbed and just and then I can see the gas the canisters coming across the, the over the gate but that that you'll you'll never forget that that screaming. La, 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 and like, yo man, this is like an attack call. Okay. And you you it's so vivid. It's so vivid, man. Like how much how fast it was, but how long it was. Like it it started so fast.
4: Mm-hmm. And then
3: it it And it ended, it was no longer than 10 minutes, but it's, that's a very long time. That's three rounds of boxing. This, you know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's like, you know, in a break, it's like, and you, it was, it was light outside when I, when I first got tied on the ground, it was dark. When I first walked into the gym where they was processing us, it was dark. It was light, and it was dark, and it was man. It's it's um, it's crazy to sit in the pocket of that story and know that you're seeing it and know that you're feeling it, and you seeing people get kicked in the head. My man, um, two shorty forty got kicked in his head like he was. Like it looked like he needed plastic surgery after that mm. when they brought him back on the block. And you seeing people go down, and you hearing this, 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 this popping of people's skin. You know, it's this, it's this burst that you hear when somebody gets stabbed. This is, this it sounds like the, like it's like a, it's like it's deep, and when you 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 actually feel like you in the old times where people would be out there fighting with butcher knives and like you can't believe that you in this space of hand-to-hand combat. Like this is, this is like, this is real savage.
4: Mm.
3: Like this is not no, oh, I'm it's a fist fight and it's boxing and you take a round and i take a This is savage and you actually feel in your mind that you have to survive this, you have to like like I'm not gonna be the person left on the field out here, and that's how you that's how you see it, and I'd be in it, even though I'm being cavalier about it, yeah, but i I didn't want to be I know I didn't want to be left on the field
2: yeah it, it's interesting because all of this information is not in this 11 minute story or whatever, but you, the reason I asked the question is like, there's clearly, it's, it's like a character. It's like an actor who does like a, like a bunch of pages of like backstory to a character that only has like one scene. It is a bit of like, you can feel so much more weight in the performance because you're remembering all of this, even though you're only telling us like three sentences, like you're ultimately trying to capture as much as you can feel and in a way where you could present it, where people are willing to listen to this story or like, and, and are sharing the story. Cause it's so funny. You know, it's, it is interesting that we're talking about something that is a very funny story because like when you talk about it is, and you remove some of the jokes, a lot of it is like a really difficult, really tragic, really dark stuff, but you, you're all of that is still in there and you don't lose sight of that.
3: I'd
0: try. Yeah.
2: So, <laughs> so unlike jokes, uh, stories tend to have clearer endings or or, or buttons. And it, what's interesting is you sort of, the, you say the moral of the story is, but you ultimately don't give a like one sentence. And that's what I learned, blah, blah, blah. You just say, I got a cut on my side by a Mexican who didn't even have on boots, which is like a, like a kind of joke, a jokier ending. What did you want the audience to sort of take away as sort of that as your your last statement to them?
3: When I was when I was telling the story, I actually um cut it off right there because I thought that was a just this, this is probably the simplest answer of all the of, of all the questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was just a good cutoff point. That's fair. I when I did it then, I didn't think to end with what Mitch said to me. I didn't think to do that. And now I think to do it. So it it makes the story different because now I say, I got I got cut by a Mexican who didn't even have on boots. And so I said, I I don't say it like that. I said, I got cut and I turned right to Mitch. And I said, he didn't even have on boots. And Mitch said, they sneaky like that sometimes. <laughs> so, so, so I ended like that now. But at the time, it was just like a good point of reference to stop at. Like they it it goes back to really that they had on boots and it it had that can't be the only sign that it's something about to happen because this kid right here didn't even have no boots. But he but he down he down with what they doing regardless. You know, boots or no boots. So
2: It's also like, yeah, it's like a story as you presented about how you don't even know what the rules are. And then you learn one rule, which is like when Mexicans have boots on, that means they're going to riot. And at the end, you're like, oh, even that rule has not not a rule. None
3: of these rules. None of this makes sense because he doesn't have on boots. Like, like, so, yeah, you
2: know, considering how long you waited to talk about prison on stage, you know. What was the reaction to this story, and, and what was your reaction to that reaction?
3: Man, the story got a ah. Uh, it was this ah. Uh, it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It was it was actually a lot. Man, I I couldn't believe how this story took off and how people felt this story, and and this this was at a time where. I don't think it was at this time where people were talking about prison reform, or they were just it was just a good story to tell at that particular junction. And then I started, I started feeling the weight of it mm. when, like, how it's twofold: how good it was for my career to to get established as a as a storyteller. And how people gravitate to the story, but then it was very damaging to me personally Hmm. because every interview people would just bring up like I'm and then they would ask me ridiculous questions about being in prison, which yeah, which prompted me to almost go back to the type of person I was when I was in prison. Like you you say something disrespectful to me in prison, I'm gonna handle you if just like I was before I was in the world. So when people that so were you trying to be funny in prison to protect yourself? I'm like yo man who are you talking to? <laughs> and saying now it's yeah. now it's now it's that like who that yo who you think I am fam? like what you think I'm you trying to judge me based upon some shit that you heard of in a movie that Richard Pryor was supposed to have done and he never been to prison like yeah. yo it, it started giving me this attitude to where I never I didn't want to even talk about it no more because this is the reason I didn't do it 17 years prior and now I'm like see this is why I don't do this this um type of material because yeah. people start to think that's what you are. You know, just like when I was doing NBC's Bring the Funny, Some uh, this guy wrote this article about ex-convict makes it to the finals of NBC's Funny. And I was like, yo, what they got to do yeah. with what I'm doing now? And it's like, yo, if I would have never told this story, if I would have told another story would I be in this position either way would I be in the in as seen as I am now or would I be you know still trying to come up in the comedy game you know it's it's a it's a fold and then it took me back to having to have to get myself under control based on the advice of you know advice that I got from people like yo mm-hmm. man. This is not who you are. You wasn't, because I wasn't seen as a prison person when I was in prison. It was like I was walking above being someone who was incarcerated to come out and establish myself in something and then do a story about being there and then to go back and now you want to see me as a prisoner, as a convicted felon, as a as my as a mistake that i made in my past like it was it was kind of damaging a little bit but then i started to understand that everybody doesn't have um class or a sense <laughs> of of or sense of character you know it 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 just you you just go back to once again having something that you have to get a grasp on and understand and to be happy about something that you accomplished. It felt like it's like it felt like they were taking the happiness away mm-hmm. from that accomplishment and making me regret telling the story. And I don't and I didn't want to live under the shadow of regret. So I kind of just like people would ask me questions that i felt like was ridiculous and then i would be like you know try to figure out a way to handle it at that particular time but don't i didn't want to go into it from a space of yo man who you talking to like a, yeah, yeah. That's a, I had to stop going to, through that through that space of who you talking to
2: it's interesting that you say that i i was wondering that I mean, I think a lot of comedians, especially because, you know, doing radio or whatever, you just every you know, there are certain interviewers that are getting like the like one sentence summary of who a person is. And they're like, what's prison like? And I can imagine what the jokes were. But it seems like if you following your career in the year since, it also seems like you've 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 had a sense of purpose as it relates to how you presented yourself as a person who was in prison, how you present people that were in prison, how you spoke to people that maybe have gone out. Has 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 um, the notoriety that came with this and the sort of spotlight that has given you, has it given you a sense of purpose or um, goals in terms of how you want to present this part of your life?
3: It, it definitely has. Uh, and I've been... I- I go in and out of what I be mad about. So I talk, I, I try to talk to the youth more than adults because I want to try to stop people from thinking that going into prison is even any type of badge of honor. And then I come up to the adults to try to get them to understand that this is, that was something that you went through, not who you are. And then I get caught up in this, this very, Maybe it may be egotistical. Maybe it may be. Um, it could be several things. But I I I hated that Lester Holt interviewed um, Meek Mills. Like I, I like I, I found that I hated it like mm-hmm. more than anything. And I hated um, Kim Kardashian for this thing because it's like the way that y'all presenting this as this this puppeteering of people that's incarcerated. And Meek Mills was like, yo, like I'm I'm the I'm the voice. But you you not the voice because you haven't been through anything. You yeah. was in you was on probation. You was in the county jail. You don't have the scars and the in the and you haven't developed the mental fortitude of what it takes to even survive out of this place. Like this is not a this is this is this is like being Drafted into the 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 military, and the first day you get there until you leave, it's absolute war the whole entire time. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying whether it's a mental war between you and the officers, you and the, you and different inmates, you in the system. It's like this is a war, and this war is trying to mentally. Is really mentally trying to destroy you. And then to put you back into a world and that you don't have any type of, man, you don't have any guidance. You don't have, Mick Mills, you came out of jail and you Mm -hmm. got picked up by the damn mayor in a helicopter. (laughs) This That shit ain't real. You know what I'm saying? Like that doesn't happen. They sent me home with, after six years of being incarcerated, they sent me home with $200 and I had no place to stay. Mm -hmm. outside of going to my mama's house. You know what I'm saying? I paroled paroled under the supervision of my mother. Then I had to meet the... Man, I'm like, what are you talking about, man? Like, how are you the voice for me? Like, what what are you talking about? You know, and and it gives you this anger how people see it. And you just like, man, do I step out there and say, yo, listen, because I'm a person that came from that position. I'm a person that walked through the steps of what it's going to take to get myself in a better place. I didn't come out rich. I didn't, I didn't go in with this, with this, with this, I didn't come out with the silver spoon or, the, or the someplace to stay. I had to work my ass off from selling clothes to being a, to working for BFI to being a janitor. So let me get your head wrapped around how many jobs you had in prison. You know what I'm saying, and what your pay was there, whether it was 25 cents. I worked a bunch of jobs for zero dollars. I'm saying so I can come out with the mental fortitude of working whatever job I have to work in order not to go back there and be satisfied with what the which way I'm going hey i this is stepping stones and look at it and give a and give a clear layout of how to survive not only the incarceration but the but the The judicial slavery once you get out of the incarceration and then what it's going to take for you to be seen as a citizen, as a as a normal human being in this society and get that gloom and get that shadow of that cloud from over your head. And then on top of that, to become successful in what you choose to be. Not yeah. what somebody else is, what you are choosing to be, and, li- and be able to live a good life and not be considered a convict or ex-convict or your whatever your past was. Whether you was addicted to drugs, whether you um was a thief, whether you was a murderer, whatever. This is your second chance, and this is the this is the playbook on how to get that second chance. So yeah how are you not contacting me to say that story that's what that's the thing that's the other yeah. thing <laughs> like, like boy i was like wow man
2: you mentioned how you're seen and, uh, and i was thinking about that as you're saying that how you know you you work so hard not to be necessarily defined by the person who who went to prison and then you sort of do this material later and you're you're seen that way how how much are you motivated by how you're seen, how people that went to prison are seen?
3: I'm very motivated on erasing that stigma that everybody is the same. You know, we we have to still get around that that like I sometimes I won't use certain words if I'm in a conversation with somebody who I can already see has this. This mental block of what prison is supposed to be. I'm not the big word using dude that don't know the definition of the words and using the words wrong. So, brother, I conjugate with the like the, what that character that that um Damon Damon Wayne did on, yeah. on in Living Color that's still how people see prisoners, yeah. you know. Uh, and you can tell me if I'm right on this. That permeates in people's mind way more than Eddie Murphy in 48 Hours.
2: Mm, that's interesting.
3: Yeah. Eddie Murphy in 48 Hours was a, was a comedy that was in a suit that was waiting on, that, that helped solve a crime. Got out. He's not... People don't think, when you think about prisons, that never comes up. What comes up is... See when you defecate, I mean disseminate, I mean like <laughs> like, yeah. like it's like what? You still have something to look over. You 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 know it, it it's like me and Tim Allen are viewed different. <laughs> yes, I would say that's true. With the same case, delivery of a controlled substance. And yet why? Yeah. The same exact case. Me and Tim Allen are viewed different. Nobody even asked Tim Allen about prison time.
2: Yeah. No. Yeah. No one asked him how does it feel to represent people who are in prison. Not at all. I I think of two things. One, it it, when you talk about that way, it, it it shows why. Being in the story and feeling it and making sure you're capturing the people you tell correctly, and you always use their names and you want to like give them the dignity of being who they are to explain that, like, you're not everyone who was in prison, not everyone wasn't you. Um, has what is it meant to be able to do this? Ha- has as you've gotten more control over being able to talk about prison on your own terms, you you, you did. Um, you talked about it in your Comedy Central special. You then put another album about it. Has doing this material helped you? Has it given you peace of mind? Has it helped you process what was clearly a traumatic time? Has, as you know, like, how has your comedy served you?
3: Oh, man. it It definitely has taken the weight off of my shoulders of hiding. When you get out of prison, you, because you still have parole and somebody can say something and get you locked back up, you hide a lot. You, you hide in plain sight. You know, you don't, you try to, you try to be very elusive and not be seen as much as you should. And it, now it's just giving me this opportunity to to for people to know my my disposition and know how I am with certain things and why why I think the way that I think and 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 I, and I use and I use it when I'm talking to people about how to protect themselves in this society, whether mm-hmm. it's a whether it's women coming home. At night, or how they should, what they should have in their possession, or how they should defend themselves, and knowing that uh, a large amount of violent crimes happen against women, so I'm very protective, and I, and I and I try to explain to people if you've never sat down and talked to a molester or a rapist or these people who have these mental sicknesses. You have to kind of listen to me because I was there with them, you know, and 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 try to utilize what I've been through to help people from the position of I was there, Mm -hmm. you know. So (laughs) in, you know, and to tell people who may be doing wrong things, hey man, this is what you in for. And I'm not going on what I heard. I'm going on what I've done, you know. And it's helped me. It's helped me a lot to be able to to pay back some of my debt to society. And and it's not. I I still think that I owe society something, hmm.
4: you
3: know. And just that realization of just knowing that you you took something away in society, you damage your neighborhood, so you kind of owe your neighborhood something. You know, you owe owe them better representation of a decent human being. And I, that's what I try I try to do with my comedy. I think it is giving me that lane yeah. in order to kind of pay back some of my debt my moral debt to society.
2: Now 5 years or so after The story came out like this is it has become a signature bit for you you know people are requesting it comedians no matter how great they are only have so many of those for whatever reason some never some great comedians just are good but no one like will name oh this is the one thing you know i think you have some (laughs) t-shirts that say it you know how do you feel about that now that mexicans got on boots became the sort of signature bit for you
3: man that. Ironically, I just discussed this with a person, and I'm being very honest about this, how I feel about myself. I said, within any era of comedy, I don't care how far you go back or how far you go forward, I'm probably in the top five storytellers based upon just one story that <laughs> that permeated God. with people. So I'm talking about that. That penetrated people's minds so deep, like they like, yo, man, this story right here, and then so it gives people the the, the fuel to listen to other stories and be like, no, he is a great storyteller. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so it's like I I'm very happy overall that yeah that sto- that story that it wasn't just a right then piece. It's still people. That's just seeing it, like, yo, this story is this story is it's people who watch it a lot, you know, and it's people who like, yo, any version of it, like we do it live. I rather you do it live or I, I wanna see it like yo, this is the thing that I show people, and for something to still be five years out, people still say it as a signature line, like, yo, man, Megan <laughs> got on boots, you know. Like, like, I, I, it's not a day I go on Instagram Live and somebody don't type that on there. What's up, Mexican? Got on boots, like, like, so, I, um, I'm very pleased, man. I, I really am with, with that, with the success of that story. <laughs>
2: That sound means it's time for our final segment, which is a laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because this is comedy, it's a a laughing round. It's much shorter, easier questions. Um, And you could pass because who cares? Um, Do you have a a joke or... It it might be hard since a lot of your things are stories, but is there a joke you wish you could steal or a joke that you saw another comedian do at any point and you're like, I wish I could have that in my act and, like, no one would know that I took it, but it'd be mine. I wish I could say that and see what it's like to tell that to people.
3: Yeah, it's this guy named Charles G. He has a joke about his favorite piece of chicken. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's so stupid, but i am like, I just want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I just want to do it, man. It's just, ah, he go through... How many like who, who the breast people, who the thigh people? <laughs> and, 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 like he goes through the whole thing, and then he get to the wings. Like, I, and I'm like, I'm a, I'm only invested in jokes. I'm a wing person. I'm like the wing. And like, <laughs> so I, I hate that I like it. I hate that I like it.
2: Um, do you have any pre-show rituals or superstitions?
3: Um, yes. I um, I go to sleep by three three thirty. Um, I do not eat after um. Three o'clock, and I'm, I'm like I must go to sleep, and I have to have on a watch. Mm. Like I, it, it's I have to. It's like I would, I will refuse to go on stage if I do not have on a watch. I borrow somebody's watch. I if I leave my watch, so I have I carry at least three or four watches with me <laughs> just in case. But yeah,
2: what why what is it about watches?
3: Because it's about timing. Yeah, like I'm 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 not late to anything because I'm a comic and everything with, with comedy is about timing. Even with storytelling, it's about timing. So I have to have one to watch, even though I don't look at it. I just said ha- it has to be there.
2: Um, do you have any unexpected influences, influences that people would be like, oh, I didn't see that. It, it might not even be comedic influences, just sort of unusual influences. But you feel like are a big, big part of your comedy?
3: Yeah, um, I, my 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 friends, man, I, this guy this guy named Papa Doc and this guy named Phil are huge influences on me, and Phil's a little bit younger than me. Papa Doc is older than me, and they they keep me very grounded, and um, and and they challenge me a lot. So mm. those are. Those are my influences and this guy named Jay Knapp, which is Papa Doc's brother, which <laughs> he he is he is like this this constant hustler that that still root for you and but then don't care about your success. I <laughs> like like it, it's crazy. Um Johnny Carson could come back to life and interview me and just me. And then go back to the grave, and he'd be like, "I saw that little bullshit as interview you did with Johnny (laughs) (laughs) Cross. So, you know, it's like me being who I am doesn't mean anything to him, and it's very inspiring.
2: Do you have a a joke that that has never worked or, or rarely works that you tried over and over again that you think is funny but you can't get an audience to laugh at? Maybe you've given it up, but you're like, you're gonna go to your grave being like, "That was funny. Those people
3: were wrong." Nope, don't have that. <laughs> I, I I wish I did, but I I I generally I generally have have forced people. <laughs> 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 I forced people to laugh at um pretty much everything I've ever done. Now um I don't I don't think I because I, I would drop it. I wouldn't I wouldn't keep it. Mm. I wouldn't I just wouldn't keep it. It it was like okay, I'm like. I tried I get I did my best, but I guess my best was not <laughs> I am like, that. I like oh, no yeah, I would drop it uh
2: and last one, do you have uh, a distinct best show of your life where you think back you're like that
3: was it? Whoa, I think I have yes, I do, I do. I um Def jam. Def Jam 08, those, those, and it wasn't even a full show. It was just mm-hmm. I was so under the radar at that time. They was looking at everybody else besides me, and this comic is funny, this, and and they would never mention me, which was cool. And <laughs> then I just, then I just felt like that day, I just unleashed that day and just stunned everybody, like from. Stan Lathan, Bob Sumner—I just stunned everybody with with my performance on Def Jam in 2008, and to this day, I'm like, yeah, that was <laughs> that was that was a pretty good show.
2: Is that the one where you came out and you like with the stool in your hand?
3: Yes, came out <laughs> with the stool. Cause I I came out I, and I don't know if people saw how I was walking. I was walking with so much determination, like. Yeah i'm gonna i'm finna get in their ass like <laughs> like, <laughs> like like man i was so determined because you know at a tape and people talking about who they felt like gonna do the best and i was like no okay they, they don't see me coming man and i'm yeah. but i am but i am i am so focused
2: um that's it that's all the questions i have but um Thank you so much for doing this. That was so good.
3: Oh, man. Thank you for having me, man. I really enjoyed myself. And thank you for, I'm talking about the the really good questions, man.
2: That's the good one guarantee. I I will be ready. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Ali Sadiq's appearances on This Is Not Happening on YouTube. Follow Ali on Twitter at Ali underscore speaks and on Instagram at Ali Sadiq. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Goddamn Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing round suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at jessedavidfox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Be back next week with a rerun of the Desus and Marrow episode. Have a good one.